Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, all kinds of comics, in fact. And today's comic that I'm going to be talking about, got no idea if this is going to win any friends or influence any people, but fuck it, it's what I'm going to be talking about today. This is Cyberfrog. 1998, The Diary of Heather Swain. And for this particular comic, I think what I'm going to do is probably skip out entirely on the usual uh, synopsis and all the, basically all the fun stuff that I, that I typically do because generally speaking, this is Elements of this story are basically uh, Blood Honey told from the point of view of the character Heather Swain. Not necessarily everything, but I would say probably the great majority of this story, it's, it's basically what we've already seen and read from Blood Honey. It's just, it, it just sort of fills in the gaps somewhat in terms of what Heather was doing in the middle of the invasion of, of the Vespas. So, for those reasons, it it just doesn't seem logical, really, to completely go through a summary of all this, since you can kind of get the sort of the broad strokes of all that if you go back and listen to my, my Blood Honey episode. So, for those of you who desperately want to hear the summary for this, Find the Cyberfrog Blood Honey episode, and basically that's the summary for this. You know, basically once the Vespa's invasion gets underway. So the creative team is as follows. Created, written, and illustrated by Ethan Van Skyver. Colors by Kyle Ritter. Lettered by Somni. And there are some dedications and all that, but I think we can sort of bypass all of that. We're going to get to, like, I guess the meat and potatoes of what I really wanted to talk about when it comes to this comic. We'll get there soon enough, but for right now, this is... These pages are not actually numbered, unfortunately, but whatever. It's probably going to be all right, I'm thinking. So anyway, uh, the very first page story starts off in 1986, and... All of this is written in the first person from Heather Swain's point of view. Captioning says, they must, have been, they must have been planning to invade us for decades. They needed to test us. Taste us. Make sure we were ripe for harvest. And then, and what we see is basically this guy stalking, chasing after this other guy. And... Basically, he, he attacks him. He beats him up. Uh, the the victim is this is this businessman looking guy. He's got uh, the coat and tie, getting chased down the street, and he's being chased by this other guy. He's got like the bug eyes and everything. He's just kind of rough looking. Almost looks kind of homeless, to tell you the truth, and. 
the captioning, it basically goes on to say, and even then, they wanted us to invite them in. They wanted our consent. Now, as all this is happening, you see the business guy, he's getting attacked and kicked around and everything. Homeless looking guy is... I can't tell if this is an intentional reference or, or, or what, but uh, he says in this kind of guttural, weird looking dialogue balloon, he says, the frequency. What is it? What is the frequency, Kenneth? Kenneth, what is the frequency? And that becomes an element of the story, but we'll get into that when we get into that. Uh, Heather's uh, diary says, So they filled the air with white noise, the right sound, at the right frequency. A whispery humming static that all of us heard, but few of us understood. And here, the, it shifts gears a bit, takes place in 1998. That's how the new year began, meaning 1998. That's how the new year began. The last year printed on a calendar I ever saw. And we see this, uh, this guy, he's skiing. Looks like he loses control as there's some kind of noise in the air. Crashes into a tree and it looks like it hurts really bad. It looks like he's hurt really bad. And it's kind of funny to me because I happened to be in school in 1998 and some friends of mine had gone on a ski trip and basically I think of the like 10 or 12, maybe more, but 10 or 12 that I could swear to, of the 10 or 12 people that went on this trip, I think one of them came back without some kind of a cast, whether it was a cast on their arm or on their leg or on their lower ankle or, or, or just wherever. It seemed that if it's your first time going on a going on a ski trip, you were coming back with some type of injury. It just seems like there was really no way of avoiding that for the most part. And so when I looked at at the bottom of page two here, seeing the guy with his skis are spread out all over the place, his poles are spread out all over the place, his legs are all fucked up looking. That was just, I, we, look guys, we all bring our own baggage to these comics and stuff that we read, and that was just the baggage that I was reading to. I mean, I don't think any, you know, any of my friends got hurt as bad as this guy did, because he looks like he's actually bleeding. He just looks really fucked up, but nevertheless, that's what I was thinking about. So uh, Heather's diary goes on to say, only a few weeks later, we answered them. On the biggest stage broadcast out to tens of millions of viewers, we unconsciously returned the frequency as we understood it. And although no one realized what was happening, we laughed, we gossiped, and what we thought was a silly postmodern kabuki dance actually granted consent to the destruction of the human race. And that's basically page three. And, you know, it, this is one of those things that I've always kind of wondered about myself. You know, all this shit that we're sending out to outer space, you know, different capsules and, you know, radio messages, maybe even films, because I think there are a few films that we've put into some kind of capsule or something like that and fired it off God knows where. You know, there's a possibility that whatever it is that we're sending out could be intercepted by life forms 
that don't necessarily have our best interests in mind, or for that matter, life forms that may have had our best interests in mind, but just as a weird fluke of communication, the notes in some Madonna song that we sent to them, come to find out we accidentally insulted some alien races, like all of their mothers, and so maybe they were inclined to be friendly toward us, but now that they think we've insulted their mother, now they're going to come a-knocking and they kind of want to know what exactly we meant by that, and maybe they want to find out with the at the point of a laser gun or something like that, you know? And it's just, to me, this is this is one of those things that I've always kind of wondered about. You know, like, what is it that... Because, like, if you can accept the idea, however ludicrous it is, sending out these little trinkets of Earth culture, sending those out God knows where, if you can wrap your mind around the idea that we're doing this to kind of let the rest of the cosmos know who we are, where we are, what we're all about. Look, there's a chance that an exchange of cultures could be a kind of a, a an enlightening thing. I mean, there are some very positive things that could come out of that, you know, making contact with some faraway race and we send them our music. They send us their music. You know, we send them our TV shows. God help them. They send us whatever their entertainment is. You know, there's a chance that a cultural exchange like that could be beneficial for both sides. There's also the chance that we could be painting a fucking target on our backs. I mean, and all of this, of course, assumes that Number one, that alien life forms exist, and number two, if they exist, that they exist in a form that is comprehensible to us. I mean, who's to say that if there are alien life forms out there that they haven't come to Earth, but we don't even realize it because they exist perhaps as spectrums of light or perhaps as microscopic life forms. I mean, you really, you wouldn't necessarily know that they're even here, you know? And so, I don't know, it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, if you can buy into the idea of intelligent alien life that we are somehow able to make contact with, there's a possibility, however remote, that making contact with them is really not a very good idea. And in fact, could be quite dangerous. So anyway... Moving forward from there, this is pages, I guess, one, two, three. This is pages four and five. Heather's diary goes on to say, Maybe we thought we had it coming. Maybe we didn't believe it was even possible. Maybe some of us wanted to find out what it was to feel something again. We'd grown bored, complacent, spoiled. Our greatest heroes were memorialized in our past. And our worst villains had become black and white re uh, relics that we told ourselves we needed to remember, lest we find them reflected in ourselves. Self-reflection. Impossible. MTV, sneaker ads, and junk food. Oprah, Oprah Winfrey's bromides placating the dumbest, the cruelest. What were we even for? 
Why were we even here? When the Vespas came, they showed us the value that still remained in us. We were food for them. Livestock. Human livestock. Our flesh was dried, stretched, and used to build hives. And it's kind of hard to think about it now. Guys, what I try to tell people, especially people who are significantly older than me, is like, guys, look, you have to understand. And this is not to get political or anything like that. I'm just saying this is, this has been my life, all right? And in my lifetime, the United States has been at war for, at this point, more than half of my life, you know? Nevertheless, I remember, you know, and what I'm saying is I don't, I mean, peacetime in my adult life has never really happened, but I do remember the 90s, and guys, front page news back in the 90s, every now and then you'd get weird bullshit like, uh, the Waco standoff or uh, Timothy McVeigh's terrorist bombing in Oklahoma City or uh, President Clinton, his latest shenanigans and the Monica Lewinsky scandal and all that stuff. But in the main, the the the, the type of stuff that you were likely to see as front page news, it was celebrity gossip or it was... Uh, the let me think. Um, Mark McGuire uh, breaking the the home run uh, record, or you know what, for that matter, uh, uh, professional athletes and uh, steroid scandals and and stuff like that. I mean, just kind of like, except for like I say, you know, standoffs with the ATF where the Branch Davidians get blown to Kingdom Come. Basically, what you were dealing with back in the 90s was just this weird sort of cultural moment where American culture was kind of eating its own tail in a weird sort of way. We didn't really have crisis situations going on here, you know. I guess an abundance of peacetime has that effect where there's just not a whole lot of shit that's going on in America that when you when you think about it, really matters. And that changed. All of that changed on September 11th, 2001. And that's kind of the dividing line in my imagination, what America was versus what America has become. I mean, I'm of the opinion, to varying degrees, we're still struggling to come to grips with that because nothing like that, nothing even remotely like that, had ever happened on on American soil before, you know? So I sometimes think that Europeans, they, they saw the same news broadcasts as the rest of us. I think they were just as horrified by what they saw as the rest of us. And I'm not trying to insult anybody here. I'm just saying that at the time that the 9-11 terrorist attacks happened, Things like the Blitz were still in recent memory for the British. Or things like the Battle of Berlin, that was still in living memory for the Germans. 
or, or, or just basically what I'm saying is World War II, you know, the Europeans still very much had World War II in living memory. And so it's not that they didn't care. It's not that they were laughing. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that like the shock of it, the horror of it, you know, I think Americans were affected by it. Number one, because it happened to us. And number two, we didn't have anything like the Blitz or the Battle of Berlin or the fall of Paris or, you know, basically the Nazis moving in on Paris. We didn't have shit like that in our backgrounds, you know, whereas the Europeans did, you know. And so there's an argument that they were just maybe as just a matter of uh, socio-cultural inheritance, mentally tougher than America was. And so I'm not saying that it's necessarily a happy thing, like a walk in the park that, that uh, they would sit there and watch uh, the uh, towers collapse. But I mean, well, shit. I mean, like the proof is in the pudding. When 9-11 happened, America started two fucking wars that we're still fucking fighting. Whereas when the the bombing in London happened a few years later, like 2005, I want to say, it was a different thing. I mean, no, the, the British, they were not happy that something like that happened. They mourned. They rebuilt. They, they struggled with, like, what is this? What does this mean? And who are we that this happened to us? But the British didn't exactly rush off to the Middle East and start bombing motherfuckers. I mean, they, you know, and I'm... I'm really trying to not offend anybody here, but what I'm trying to say is that there is a sense in which American society in the 1990s, you could say that it was so decadent in certain ways that we were reduced to gossiping about celebrities as though this bullshit even really matters. But it does because there's really nothing else going on of any substantial consequence inside of America. And so... When I'm sitting here, and this is my point, when I'm sitting here reading all of this, like, holy fuck, like, what would it have been like if in, you know, 1998, basically late stage America, pre 9-11, a bunch of aliens had started wrecking shop on, on America, on the world, in fact, and like, how badly would that have fucked us up, you know? And there is a sense in which I can kind of understand where Van Skyver is coming from here. It uh, Again, Heather, uh, Heather Swain's diary, it says, self-reflection, impossible, MTV, sneaker ads, and junk food, Oprah Winfrey's, God, I don't know why I struggle with that so much, Oprah Winfrey's bromides placating the dumbest, cruelest. What were we even for? Why were we even here? And this kind of, I don't like cultural aimlessness that I at least associate with the 90s. Because when you think about how the 90s began in America and how the 90s ended in America, there is a sense in which early 90s typified by uh, that whole Seattle grunge thing, this real kind of existential crisis. It's like, what the fuck is this even a, like, why are we, what are we doing here? Why are we here? What, what are we living for? What have we achieved? Who are we? And just this kind of confusion that I at least associate with the late 80s and early 90s. And then when you get into the end of the 90s, 
this kind of good time sort of party music where you got a bunch of one-hit wonders, everything is disposable, and it's like America as a culture almost decided on the answer to the questions raised by the early 90s uh, grunge people is that there is no answer. We're, we're, we're not here for anything important, and in fact, from a certain point of view, we might not actually be here at all if we take the matrix, like however literally you want to you wanna take that. Um, nothing's real, nothing matters, and ultimately nothing is important. And when you think about it, I mean, 9-11 happened arguably at the worst possible time, at least for American society, on like some kind of collective psychological level, this sort of collective unconscious that everyone sort of participates in, but no one can really define. But we all know it when we see it. And so thinking about what exactly the just the cultural ramifications of an alien invasion would have been in whatever short amount of time we had to even process something like that. I mean, it is kind of horrifying to think about. And this is one of those things that I always sort of wondered about. Like, why is it that Van Skyver wanted to set the alien invasion back in the 90s? Like, what was up with that? Why is it that Cyberfrog had to go missing in 1998 and then resurface in 2018? I mean, yeah, 20 years, that's that's a nice round number, and it's I, I guess there's some logic to that, but I, I guess on a deeper level, why is it that this alien invasion, that the Vespas had to come wreck shop on everything in the 90s? Why, why is that so important? And I can't help thinking that the reason he he wanted the alien invasion to take place in the 90s is it's it's very important that it take place before 9/11. Cyberfrog exists in a world where 9/11 as such never happened because the Vespas got here first. And so American society never had a chance to to deal with the shock of 9/11 and perhaps maybe is able to somewhat better fight back or or there's going to be a little bit more of a struggle perhaps that never had a chance to happen we got hit basically at our all-time weakest moment by something much bigger far more devastating than 9-11 ever thought about being and so it's just it this is one of those things that i was sort of wondered about especially when i was reading uh, blood honey and reading the Diary of Heather Swain, it's kind of helped me put this into some sort of better context. I mean, maybe I'm projecting a meaning and insight onto Van Skyver's writing that he never intended and is not really appropriate, but I, I just, I can't help thinking that I'm onto something here, you know, that it needed to be specifically the 90s and just the, the decadence of all that and I, I guess how, I guess just nihilistic. Because I remember the 90s, like the mid to late 90s, being especially very nihilistic. I mean, yeah, you've got, uh, I was talking about the grunge thing just a second ago and their ongoing quest for meaning and purpose and their assumption that there is no meaning or purpose to be found. But just this nihilism that I remember kind of permeating the 90s and... That's just the way that I've always sort of thought of Gen X, you know, that 
more than any other, they were sort of defined by that nihilism and that meaninglessness and that just complete lack of engagement or attachment to things simply because none of nothing that none of this really matters and none of this is completely real in some ways and I, i'm not trying to piss on an entire generation here except to say that that's that's something that i've always thought that generation x always kind of had lurking in the back of their collective unconscious just as a generational cohort this sneaking suspicion that None of this is really all that important in the grand scheme of things because ultimately there is no grand scheme of things. So I don't know. It's all in how you look at it. So anyway, I'm kind of spending a bit too much time on all this. Uh, the uh, uh, page next, uh, the uh, diary says, So what do I recall on the last day that I wasn't afraid? On the last year I saw a calendar... On the last day that I saw my best friends, I remember it was a completely normal day. And then from there, she it, it just gets kind of windy. We get some uh, establishing shots of the city. Pennsylvania is my memory, but I don't remember what exactly the city is. Seems a bit easy to say it's Pittsburgh. Well, fuck it. I'll say it's Pittsburgh. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But fuck it. We'll say Pittsburgh. So we get this uh, this establishing shot of the uh, of the Milky Way, and then from there a far off establishing shot of planet Earth, and then from there a far off establishing shot of the city of Pittsburgh, I assume, or something in Pennsylvania at least, and then from there we get this relatively close up uh, establishing shot of this looks like a shipyard, and Heather uh, Heather's diary says. Okay, so I remember this, to do Ron Ron, but because I'm clever, I called him Salamandroid, or Sal for short. Oh man, I wish you'd seen him. And then from there, we do see him on the very next page. This is a, uh, this is a a, a a splash page. It's Salamandroid, and he is large and in charge. He's filling up the pay uh, the uh, page here, and in fact, going far beyond it. I mean, he's just too big for this page to to handle. And this is basically when we start getting uh, synced up with uh, Blood Honey a little bit. It, it It's basically Salamandroid duking it out with Shockroach as uh, Cyberfrog is, uh, uh, he's duking it out with uh, Traumadeus. And uh, this is basically the battle on the Walt Whitman Bridge that we saw in, um, in Blood Honey. And just quite apart from the fact that this is just some amazingly well done art. I mean, I just look at uh, Salamandroid. He's there's just so like a ridiculous amount of detail on all of this. And honestly, this is one of the reasons why I really go in for these crowdfunded comics. This is just so fucking cool. You know, the colors and everything, the detail, the crazy angles that uh, Van Skyver sometimes uses. This is just fun comics. You know, and I really dig that. So let's see, page next. Uh, it's basically heroes and villains talking trash to one another while uh, Heather's Diary narrates. And there are elements of this that I kind of have to wonder, like, is this stuff that Heather sort of picked up on after the fact? Because 
she's not, she was not around for any of this. This was a, this is actually a major plot point of um, Blood Honey, that she was not around for this. That that basically Cyberfrog and Salamandroid they basically swooped off into action, and then they duked it out with the bad guys for a while. And at that exact moment, that's when the invasion happened, as they were separated from Heather, and so. And I don't know. Maybe it's just a, a little bit of creative license that we're that, that we're working with here. It just so sort of makes me wonder. So, anyways, so you've got Cyberfrog page next. Uh, he's uh, basically duking it out with Traumadeus and sort of getting tortured a little bit. You get the idea. You do. Do any of you remember that that song, um, Barbie Girl? I think. I think this, the the, uh, the captioning says Barbie Girl, and if memory serves, that was by a band called Aqua, and that was uh, my memory of it is it's that was a very famous uh, song in uh, 1998, and apparently the well whatever I could tell you some behind the scenes shit with that song, but my understanding was it was meant to be a parody that was taken seriously, and so anyway, uh, but basically it sound what I'm interpreting here is that. One of the things that Traumadeus is sort of famous for doing is uh, torturing people with the this uh, keyboard version of various pop songs that are playing on the radio. What the captioning makes specific reference to is Barbie Girl, but it looks like what Traumadeus is actually singing is Hanson, uh, Hanson's uh, Mbop. And so, <laughs> wow. Yeah, this was definitely 1998. Wait, was Hanson 1990? Well, whatever. Whenever that song came out, I, I'm sure it was still played on the radio in 1998. So anyway, so moving right along from there, we've got Heather. She's back in uh, Cyberfrog's house, chilling out, watching TV. And then the, the uh, invasion gets underway. And we get this two-page mega splash of Heather basically getting attacked by one of the Vespas. And this again is just such a, this is usually I don't go in for these two page spreads just because I don't know what it is, but it's like artists want to put everything in the fucking center with these two page spreads. And that is kind of a pain because the, when you put shit in the center, it's, like in in this case, it's it's the Vespa's head. It's in the center of the page, and so you you there's a there's detail here that's that, that's missing. Whereas if it was just a little bit over one direction or the other, you'd be able to see a little bit more of the detail here, and I think the whole thing would look a lot more menacing. And <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, look, whatever. It's it's just it's this is one of those things that's bugged the fuck out of me for decades. So. But when you move away from that, again, this is just an amazingly detailed... Like, look at the amount... If you're following along in your own comic, look at the amount of detail on the floor. You've got the chicken fry uh, uh, bucket. Looks like there's uh, debris or rubble or something like that on the floor. Uh, there's all sorts of detailing on the wall with uh, a sheetrock that's been knocked out. So you see uh, what's, uh, what's behind the sheetrock. You see dusty old furniture. Some of it looks kind of broken. Uh, the TV is uh, showing the uh, color bars. I mean, there's just an amazing amount of detail. I mean, the ceiling and the walls, 
They all have like texture to them and everything. It's just a fucking amazing amount of detail here. And it's like, this is a spirit that you just don't see in modern comics a whole lot anymore where everything has to look like a fucking coloring book and it's like nothing has any real personality anymore. It's just annoying. So anyway, I really dig this two-page spread in case that wasn't clear. So I'm going to get a, a drag of vapor here. All right, so moving right along, Heather's basically cornered by the uh, this uh, giant wasp, and guys, she's gonna die. All right, uh, if she was basically if she was friends with anybody else, she would have died right then and there. But the thing is, she's got this is uh, she says that all she can hear is. Uh, the beating of her own heart, and then uh, the captioning says, and Kiel Sin's heart. Cyberfrog mo Cyberfrog's mother's heart. Cyberfrog had just moaned at me for only using it as the power source to watch CNN all day. And you see a picture of what I imagine is the heart. And it's speaking some sort of alien language. And uh, the diary says, he promised to come back for me. Stuck a tracker on me. I never saw him again. Kielsen's heart spoke, and I heard it, and it sounded like my own mother singing to me. When I was underwater, when she washed my hair as a child, and I knew she wanted me to run away, meaning Kielsen. I knew she wanted me to run away. So I did. And so Heather makes a run for it, and Kielsen's heart basically blasts that wasp into the next life, it just gets engulfed in flames, and it's just so fucking cool looking. Just look at this. Now, when I was talking about uh, Blood Honey, I <clears throat> I think I even referred to Kyle Ritter as an unindicted co-conspirator on that book. But, man, he really, again, just brings home the bacon here. I mean, just look at this. The, the, the wasp is getting is getting swallowed in flames and it's just so cool looking. I just love this. Anyway, so from there, uh, page next, uh, Heather makes a run for it and she's watching people basically get, uh, sw uh swarmed by, uh, Vespas and she left. Oh, wow. I wonder if this is actually going to be a plot point. She left Kielsen's heart behind in Cyberfrog's house. So I wonder if we're going to see something about that in Wrecked Planet. But anyway, so now, point is, she's completely defenseless, right? She's uh, running through the city, and it's basically uh, pandemonium, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria, okay? This, I mean, you want to talk about just some really hellish imagery. The the, the Vespas are swoop, uh, swooping all around the place, they're uh, killing people left and right, and Heather ends up catching a ride with a with a uh, cop, and it's only when you flip over to the next page that you realize he's been partially possessed, I guess, because he's been in some way or another fucked up. I mean, he's got honey 
coming out of his eyes, ears, nose, mouth. I mean, he's he's completely fucked up. Uh, Heather's uh, diary says they'd already gotten him. This poor cop speaking gibberish, which is what happens as your insides are slowly broken down, liquefied, becoming their honey to feed their larvae. We crashed hard. I don't remember feeling that either. I do remember the wet leaves and pine needles hitting my face and arms as I fled into the trees. And there she's pursued by one of the Vespas. And it doesn't exactly go well for for this Vespa. Uh, he basically, uh, this Vespa gets attacked by uh, a, a, machete, a machete-wielding uh, survivalist who seems to know an awful lot about the Vespas. And here's the thing. I mean, I get the idea that basically the invasion starts, Kielsen takes out the Vespa that uh, attacked Heather. She makes a run for it. She runs out in the street. She sees all these people dying and everything. She catches a ride with a cop. And then they basically drive out to the woods. And that all happens in the span of about 15 minutes. Now, the reason I say all of that is to say that this survivalist, it's like he already knows all of the rules of survival, like right away. Uh, the survivalist guy, uh, his name's Colin, he says, you can come out now, miss. These things don't do so well here. The trees are too close together for them to fly. I'm Colin. If you'd like, you can follow me to safety. I've got a place. And so they make their way through the woods. And here it, it comes out that, well, I'll just read it. It says, so we wear red. These things look like wasps, and that's the only color wasps can't see. We're invisible to them. And let's see. Yeah, that seems like it's, that's most of it, like right there. Anyway, so it just kind of makes you wonder, how is it that this guy knows so much about the Vespas when the invasion only started 15, maybe 20 minutes ago? Uh, he knows about their, their, the, the fact that they're, they're blind or red. And I don't know if that's actually true of all wasps. I, I don't really know a whole lot of, uh, about wasps. I've never heard of them being blind to red, but it's like, either way, like, how could this guy have possibly known so much about the Vespa so quickly, such that he had a, his machete ready to go, he knew to wear red, he knew to outfit his son in red, like, what's up with that? Like, the fact that wasps, uh, or the Vespas, they don't do well, uh, in, you know, in trees. Now, the smoke thing, you know, basically, you know, keep, uh, stay close to, to fire, that is, maybe that is kind of obvious, but it does make me wonder, how did Colin know about this other stuff? And I don't know, maybe that's going to come out later on. So I, I don't know. So anyway, so from there, um, that's pretty much the end of 1998. Uh, we flip ahead to 2018. And Heather says, I've learned to value what I have. This home, this community, and my daughter, Lily because it can be taken from me in an instant, like her father was. It's been 20 years since the day the old world ended, and we've survived by following the rules, stay in the trees, 
Stay near the smoke. Wear red outdoors. Never panic. We can do it. We can live without, and then she gets interrupted <clears throat> by Lily, and this is uh, where uh, Blood Honey ends. She gets interrupted by her daughter Lily saying, Mom, Cyberfrog's back! And that's the that's the end of uh, Blood Honey, and it's also the end of The Diary of Heather Swain. And I gotta tell you, I mean, you know, when you think about the amount of bullshit that uh, Heather's been through as... You know, over the course of, you know, uh, 20 years from 1998 to 28, you know, when uh, 1998, when Cyberfrog disappeared and 2018, when he came back, obviously she was busy enough to have a daughter. And it just seems to me that there's more story to be told here. And I can't help thinking that maybe more story is forthcoming. So I don't know. Either way, though, this was a this is a. A uh, fun little comic. We get a little bit more action than we got in than we got in uh, in, in Blood Honey. Uh, it's basically, I guess, some of the same action that we that we saw before, but from kind of a different point of view. We get uh, some kind of interesting character development for Heather, who she is, and what exactly it is that she's been through. Not necessarily everything that she's been through, but. We get it. We get the basic flavor of what she's been through for the past twenty years. The twenty-year gap does indeed still remain a gap, but she's at least um, becoming more and more uh, fleshed out. And this is—I mean, I realize that there are that there were cyber frog uh, comics published prior to Blood Honey, but I've never read any of those. Well, actually, that's not completely true. I've well, whatever. Anyway, it's, it, it's complicated. But the point is, um, there's a lot of stuff that is not necessarily still canon with Cyberfrog from those original Cyberfrog comics. They're not necessarily canon anymore in the Bloodhoney era. So, I don't know. There's There's basically just a lot here, is what I'm trying to say, that in terms of world building, we still need to work through, still need to, to, to establish and all that. And there's time for that. I mean, that's the beauty of it. We, you know, uh, EVS, he's got years to uh, tell cyber frog stories. And so, I don't know. It's just, I see plenty of room for filling in a lot of the blanks that are still missing right now. So anyway, but Perhaps that's coming in, in some future volume, like I say. So one of the, uh, I guess one of the last things that I've got to say about The Diary of Heather Swain is this is a mini comic. Now, a lot like me, uh, EVS is a fan of 90s comics. The, just the industry as it was in the 1990s and Back in the 1990s, you would get things like chromium covers and foil embossed covers, you know, things that EVS obviously has a pretty serious boner for. But you would also get things like mini comics and ash cans and, and, and stuff like that. And I think, like, technically, The Diary of Heather Swain is this is a mini comic because it's got quality uh printing it's printed on quality paper uh paper stock it's it's printed in full color basically most ash cans 
can't really say that. Usually it's kind of, it's almost like photocopy quality, like black and white photocopy quality. And obviously not in color. And so this is, a, I don't know how accurate it is to call this an ash can. I mean, Van Skyver advertised it a, a, as an ash can, but I think technically this is more aptly uh, uh, called a mini comic. So I, it really, it doesn't matter that much. I guess it's, it's just sort of a matter of matter of perspective, but uh, this is what I'm trying to say is this is not standard comic book dimensions. This is, well, and I think it's even a bit bigger than Ashcan dimensions now that I think about it, because those were supposed to be smaller yet than, than these mini comics. But the, uh, the point is call it whatever you want. This is definitely not a full size comic. It does, it does pack a lot of a punch. I'll, I'll say that much, but it's, um, it, it's a, I guess, like in terms of size, this is actually the smallest comic that I've ever re uh, reviewed on uh, Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. So, hey, making history all the time here. So, anyway, so that's that stuff. Now, getting into feedback for just a moment. This is a bit of, actually, I, I, this is kind of interesting. This is audio feedback that I received from longtime listener of the show, longtime friend of the show. <clears throat> And podcaster in his own right, this is the host of the Bizarre Manor podcast, uh, Christopher Willette. So I'm just going to let him say what he needs to say. Hey, Trentus. Um, I don't know if this matters, and I was recording stuff, so I guess I'm doing it this way. But I keep thinking about it, so I'll send it to you, and you can decide if it matters. But um, I keep thinking about your spawn episode which i'm really enjoying the whole seven guys interrupting comics and stuff because i knew almost nothing like obviously i saw spawn he was everywhere um i really wanted to see that movie for the longest time and didn't and then i don't know i think a year ago i got half an hour into it before i stopped i thought it was going to be so awesome and it was so cheesy but um you were talking about what um other people of faith may think of the religious themes in the Spawn books. And it reminded me of a weird situation I was in, because I, I don't know, I haven't read the Spawn books. But in my sophomore year of college, I went on a in-state missions trip to Hampton Beach with Campus Crusade. Yeah, and um, it, I don't know, it was really good, but um, one of the guys in my little roommate area um, was a huge comic book fan, and I was kind of jealous that he knew so much about that, because I knew nothing, and um, he was a Spawn fan. And Todd McFarlane just started putting out the toys, and they were hard to get wherever he was from, but they were in the stores in New Hampshire. So he went right out and bought Violator, and it was awesome looking. And we were in this, like, abandoned shoe store. Like, not abandoned as in people, it used to be a shoe store. And now it wasn't. It was this rental property and other people lived in it like apartments during the winter. And um, 
this group rented it out for the summer and it looked very 1970s like you felt like you were in a trailer house but it wasn't and um he had violator on the window in the back and i remember this very weird conversation because i was super super conservative about movies and things at that point and um he put it out and offended almost everybody in the house they were all just disgusted that this monster was now working in their back window and one of the leaders came to talk to me and it i felt like he was trying to like recruit me to go against adam and get rid of this monster and um he's like think about the witness if the guy who owns the house walks through and he sees this monster over there and i'm like i don't think he's gonna care and he's like it looks so evil <laughs> and i told him you're wearing a t-shirt with the genie from aladdin which the big message of that was everybody should be their own king isn't that a bigger problem than his little demon statue like that looks the way you want people to think of the devil. Like, at the time, I did think Violator was the devil. I found out later that, no, there were levels of things going on. So, the um, to make this rambling story end, I pulled out the Bible, and I looked up in the verse, the verse in the Bible about... Um, you're like resist the devil and he will free flee from you and the wants to roam and devour you and whatever so i wrote it out in really fancy script this whole bible verse about um making sure you stay on your guard against the wiles of the devil and i put it poster form like underneath violator <laughs> and everybody just left adam alone after that which he did thank me, so I felt like I did something good for humanity. <laughs> I don't know. Does it help anything to have that story out in public? All right, Chris. So uh, thanks a lot. Really appreciate you taking the time to send that in. And just as a general note to all of my listeners, something I don't know that, I, that I've really done a very good job of making clear lately is that if you want to send feedback to the show... You can do so. You can send me an email. You can get in touch with me at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S, trentusmagnus at gmail.com. So if you've got something you want to say and you want to email it to me, uh, just send it there. No problem. But there, there is an argument I, I, that maybe well, maybe not the best way or the only way, but one way of sending feedback is to record something of your own and then just send me that. So if that's the way that you want to do it, I hope, I hope all of you understand that you are welcome to do so. You can uh, just record whatever it is that you want to say, and then you can Dropbox it to me, Google Drive, just whatever, or email it for that matter, just whatever you think is best. You can uh, send it to me as an audio file, and then I can just uh, plunk it into the episode. And then that's that. So that's a completely valid way of of doing this. So now, uh, Chris, for for you specifically, I pretty much have to agree with you. The Spawn movie is 
kind of cheesy. And I mean, I can defend it from the standpoint that Spawn was a new character and I guess 1997, we're starting to get into the late 90s at that point and comic book adaptations of that time, they were what they were and they weren't always necessarily very good. It could be, as you probably remember, it, it could be a very mixed bag. And I think the Spawn film definitely falls into the the mixed bag sort of category. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's atrocious. I mean, I think people have a way of kind of perhaps overstating the movie's flaws, how bad it really was. It's not great. This is in no means like Iron Man 2008 or The Incredible Hulk or The Dark Knight or at least in my estimation, because this is a compliment in my book, it's no Batman v Superman. I love Batman v Superman. Spawn is nowhere near that level of quality. It's just, it just is sort of there. So I, I, I do agree with you that it's, it's lacking quite a bit. But the context of your remarks, it actually kind of makes me wonder, did you ever get around to seeing the HBO animated series? Because if you haven't, I mean, I don't want to spoil too much of it for you, but I I do want to make it clear that if you wanted to put a rating on the animated series, it's it's a pretty solid R rating for the for the animated show. It doesn't really adapt the comic book storyline. It I it adapts the the characters from the comics, it, it adapts a lot of the ideas from the comics, but not specifically the story. And so in that way, it's like it's the same flavor as the comics. If you like the comics, odds are you'll probably enjoy the animated show. But try not to think of this as the kind of direct and kind of didactic sort of adaptation of the comics that the uh, MTV Max show was i mean i have never seen a more a, a more direct and straightforward adaptation of any comic book into any other medium than the h or the uh, mtv uh animated show about the max i mean that was it was almost like they animated the 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 panels of the comic book page i mean that is how direct it was and so this the the uh, spawn hbo animated series it's not a wholesale reinvention of the comics by any means but it is uh, i want to emphasize this it's an adaptation of the characters of the themes of the ideas of the conflicts of the comic uh, uh, of the comic book it is not an adaptation of those storylines so you get something that's very similar to the comic book but you're constantly getting surprised by the presentation in a weird kind of way. I would almost want to compare it to the Walking Dead comic book as compared to the Walking Dead TV show. It's like you can't really deny that the the show has some very deep roots in the comics, but it's like at the same time, the TV show is nevertheless, it's very much its own thing. So maybe you can, I don't know if that's going to help you with it, but just in case you haven't seen the HBO animated series, if you're a fan of Spawn, I do actually recommend checking that out. I do think it's it's a quality product. 
it's worth your time to look into. And perhaps is maybe it's just the television format. Perhaps it's a bit more engaging than the than the film. And again, if you wanted to put a rating on the animated show, I guess it would be most comparable to an R rating. Whereas the film, that was a solid PG-13. You know, there was just a certain zone they weren't going to go into in, in, in the movie. And I don't know if that worked to the benefit of the material or not, but nevertheless, that, that is what happened. Now, your remark about Campus Crusade for Christ, um, that kind of uh, struck me where I live. This is one of those things. Uh, Chris, I don't completely understand the way that this works, so pardon my ignorance here. When I was in high school, what I remember everybody talking about and everybody being interested in was young life. And I always got the idea that a given uh, high school campus, if it had any program at all, it was going to be either Camp, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ or it was going to be Young Life. And I never figured out exactly why it was that one program would be chosen over the other or what the differences between these programs were, if any. But it's just it's one of those things that Campus Crusade for Christ, it's, it, it's one of those things that I hear about and have heard about and all of that I've had no real experience with simply because it's just this thing that exists kind of like it's it's on the other it's on the other side you know so i never really knew a whole lot about that program what it is what it does um and so i get the idea this isn't based on anything you understand but i i just get the idea that young life was a little bit more non-denominational whereas campus crusade for christ it was more specifically not even Protestant, but more specifically like evangelical in nature. And so I I don't know if that's true, but that's just, this is one of those things I'm sure is a Google search away, but it's just, take this the way I mean it. It was one of those things that never really mattered enough to me to, to check into and find out about. So, but just so you understand, I mean, it was, I guess what I'm trying to say say here is like where I'm going with this is to say that you know, you talk about a Campus Crusade for Christ missions trip. I didn't even know that they did that. So you're kind of breaking new ground here for me. So anyway, now uh, regarding the uh, the, the uh, Spawn figures, you know, you mentioned that your roommate uh, purchased the Violator. Did, just offhand, do you remember if he ever got around to collecting any of the other figures or not? Because... My memory of it is that first wave of Spawn figures, it was McFarlane. He was getting in there, you know, he was cracking his teeth a little bit, and he was just trying to figure out what are toys, how do I make these things. And it's really when you start getting into the second wave and the third wave and then just going forward from there, he found his sea legs uh, a little bit more in terms of what it was he wanted his company to be you know the the first wave was really him kind of on a learning curve but having said all of that i owned a few of those toys and this for those of you listening who maybe you don't remember or you just weren't around for this or something like that the 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 spawn toys that were released in the 90s like that first wave this was when toys really did begin changing Whereas what toys had always been, this was 
it was basically something for children to 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 use to play with and or at least when I was a kid the way I always played with toys was you know maybe you could reenact scenes from a from one of from some movie or show or whatever your your toy series is based on but when I was a kid I just I didn't really see much of a point in that because if I want to if I want to play the movie out then I can just watch the damn movie you know so what I would do is I would just try to create my own little storylines and my own conflicts and they're in it's always going to be an imperfect thing just because your cast of characters is always going to be limited by the toys, not even just the toys that exist, but the toys that you personally own. So there's a lot of cannibalizing of other toys that happens. And, and so anyway, but the way I would, that I at least would do it is to kind of devise my own storylines. And, you know, I'm sure most of them were probably pretty bad. But, you know, nevertheless, that was just something that I at least, you know, got a got a thrill out of doing. I liked using these toys for sort of my own stories as opposed to recapitulating somebody else's stories. So so there is that. But and and if you ask me, that was broadly and this is my point, that was broadly what toys were kind of meant to be. You know, all throughout the late 70s, all through the 80s, even going into like the early 90s. But really, with the advent of McFarlane toys, that's when things really... That's when I remember them really starting to change. And the it's like the thrust of action figures. It could be... It could be playability. It could be, you know, can you uh, uh, play with these things? Can you... Uh, kind of use them as templates for imagination and engage the storytelling side of your uh, of your brain and and all that. But there's also there's also the the possibility that toys could be something a bit more for collectors, something that you pose on your bookshelf. And they're not. I mean, I guess you could play with them if you want to, but really, what what these toys are really supposed to do is they're meant to be um kind of like tchotchkes that you put on your bookshelf next to uh, your spawn trade paperbacks and your your wildcats trade paperbacks and all that fun stuff or for that matter maybe even your your wildcats action figures because those did exist and so that's the that's when i at least remember that things started to change and so my purpose in saying all of this is just kind of a long way of setting this uh the uh, table is that Chris, I don't know what happens to a kid's imagination, but something fatal happened to mine right around the time I was about like 11, maybe 12 years old, where it's it's like some part of your imagination. It's like somebody just reaches in there and turns out the lights, and it's like virtually impossible to reignite that to bring that back and if i was the only person that this happened to i would almost want to say that like there was some uh, amorphous time when my child imagination died or some grandiose thing like that but i've heard other people say something kind of similar that just about the time they were 10 11 12 13 just right around there it's like the way that they played with toys when they were kids. It just 
it's not even that it changed. It just died. You know, it just out and out died. And so from that point on, they would buy toys more from a collector's mindset than a playability mindset. And so I'd already kind of undergone that that shift. And so the fact that Spawn had this kind of sculpted plastic cape, that was not a bug. That was a feature. You know, I liked the fact that it was very uh, posable. You could put him on your book, your uh, bookshelf. He just looked really fucking cool up there. And it was just kind of a tchotchke that I had in, in, in my bedroom, but it wasn't something that I took down off my bookshelf all that much and had little battles with the violator and all this stuff. And I think I had the redeemer as well, but Maybe I'm wrong, but I swear to think that I had the Redeemer. And that just wasn't something that I would do. I would pose them up against each other on, on my shelf, but didn't really do a whole lot with them. That's how I remember it. And so, um, anyway. So, but now you, you mentioned the fact that your, uh, that some of your uh, fellow Christians were kind of offended by, by seeing the violator. And I mean, that again, that kind of spoke spoke to me where I lived because, you know, I've mentioned in the past that my parents, after a certain point, they really did not support me uh, collecting comics and, and loving comics and, and all of that. This, I, th it, it was something that they tolerated for a while, but then, then they stopped tolerating it after a certain point. And I don't mean that as a slam on my parents that I was mistreated or something like that. They simply made a parenting decision that I disagreed with at the time and I disagree with today. All right. But I don't want to make it sound like I was somehow mistreated or something like that because I don't, I don't really think that I was, but nevertheless, this was something that was a source of conflict between the two of us or the three of us, I guess, like my side and their side basically. And so, uh, this was, um, this was a, a controversial thing. This was something that I had to argue and justify and all of that stuff. And really, it was the name Spawn. I mean, they heard that and they knew what that meant. But really, the, the, the big offender here was the violator, just because he, he's just so monstrous looking and so evil looking and so scary looking, that figure was, that it really was uh, a, it was a hard sell. We'll say that it was a, it was a hard sell, and you know my parents, I would say, are reasonably devout, you know, and so uh, that was definitely one of their objections to it. And I, I guess you know my defense, I don't think I, I really could have formulated it into like a cogent thought back then, but my way of rationalizing it now. In fact, I think this was even the title of the episode that I did about Spawn number four. My way of sort of rationalizing it was that this is a fictional cosmology, you know, and so there may be areas of overlap with Christian, um, Christian cosmology, with Christian theology, Christology, ecclesiology, all that fun stuff. There may be instances of overlap that Spawn has with that stuff. But if there's overlap, it's by coincidence. You know, this isn't something that Mc, that McFarlane set out to do. He basically, he, he grew up 
and his sort of his sensibilities are notwithstanding the fact that at least back in the 90s I don't know about now but at least back in the 90s he was an atheist back then nevertheless his understanding of religious concepts it's still it, you know it, his understanding was still shaped by a nominally christian culture and so whenever he's creating his own fictional cosmology he's going to use a lot of christian and churchy type terms just because that you know that's the jargon that he's familiar with but at the end of the day <clears throat> he created a fictional cosmology and so you know my way of again my way of of kind of processing all of this is that what we read in spawn comics this is basically the 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 product of one man's imagination and we really shouldn't give it any kind of value beyond that point and so yes the violator is a kind of scary monstrous looking figure that's kind of the entire point and so when somebody says that you know the violator is a monster he's scary looking they may or may not realize that they're actually complimenting Todd McFarlane for a job well done and so again I mean you know this all of this kind of played into a wider conflict like I say not even a conflict just a difference of opinion really between me and my parents and Chris I apologize for rambling at you so much but anyway nevertheless this is just something that I've got a lot of fond memories of a lot of vivid memories of but you know there were some unpleasant aspects to this you know this uh, these areas of disagreement that I had with my parents about about these types of things. And so at least in the short term, they won. But, you know, in the long term, really nothing much changed. I just, when I moved out of their house, I just went back to business as usual, more or less. So anyway, but uh, it nevertheless, it this has always been kind of an interesting objection to me, though, that that some religious types have... I would say specifically with Spawn from the standpoint that this is something that's bad simply because it showcases something that is bad. And I think that's kind of a wrong hand, a sort of a wrong headed approach. Now, at the same time, I mean, I don't consider myself to be a superstitious person. Uh, person. I am, as Michael Scott would probably say, mildly stitious. There are certain things that I simply don't want to have in my house, but stuff like Spawn, The Violator, all that stuff, I don't see that specifically as any kind of threat. Or for that matter, I don't even really see it as a a, a statement about religion really one way or the other. You know, it's just like I say, it's fictional cosmology. So anyway, but yeah, I, it's one of those things that, I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't know what the right answer is. <clears throat> I mean, if I, if I had been your roommate, if it really bothered people that much, I would be willing to, you know, put the figure away, but I'm not here to tell anybody else that they're wrong. So anyway, but it, like I say, I mean, it does strike me as kind of interesting because when people say that the violator looks evil, well, he's the bad guy. That's kind of the point. So anyway, but, uh, all the same, uh, Chris, uh, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to record that and send it in. You and I kind of had a little bit of, tr uh, uh, trouble, 
getting uh, the Google Drive permissions set and ready to go so that I could actually listen to this thing, download it and all that stuff. So thank you very much for uh, taking the time to, to work through that with me. Really appreciate it. Um, appreciate you uh, taking the time to, like I say, to uh, send that in to all of you listening. If, like I say, if there's feedback that you want to write to me, you can send it, at, send it to me at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S, trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's where you can send it. But it doesn't necessarily have to be written. If you would rather record an audio file of you saying whatever it is that you have to say, and then you can, like I say, you can Dropbox that to me, you know, or you can use Google Drive or just try emailing it to me if you think that's going to work. Whatever you think is best, just, you know, you, if you want, you can record your thoughts in audio form as well and send that to me, and that works just as well. So, anyway, um, and that, as it turns out, I think that's pretty much it for me for in terms of feedback, and I think that's really pretty much it for, for me this week in general. Now, getting into next week, I know what I want next week's episode to be, but it really comes down to whether or not I'm going to have that comic book in hand or not. So it's kind of up for grabs. So I don't want to say that it's going to be this, that, or the other thing when, for all I know, it may not be possible to to, to uh, get my hands on that particular comic book. But like I say, I, I know what I want it to be, and I'm going to, you know, hopefully... Hopefully it's going to work out the way the way I want it to work out. But uh, either way, that's whatever it is that's going to be next week. I think that's it for me for this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me 
and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Thank you.